You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Reinsurance is in a particularly interesting state at the moment. Industry capital has recovered as capital markets have bounced back after decisive actions from central banks around the world, and incumbents and a few startups have raised or plan to raise new capital. But at the same time, the industry has shown stronger underwriting discipline as it seeks to correct a poor run of results and tries to get ahead of likely unsatisfactory back-year development in casualty classes. Retro is expensive as the LS market retrenches and traditional buyers are looking to alternative capital solutions. Differentiation is everywhere as sellers identify their best clients for support and reduce involvement with lesser performers. At the same time, uncertainty is at an all-time high and this means demand for reinsurance from cedents is very healthy. Throw COVID-19 into this and you have an outlook full of very big, very difficult to answer and highly correlated questions. Here to answer them, armed with Willis Re's first view mid-year renewals report, is James Vickers, chair of Willis Re International. Links to Willis Re's latest report and COVID-19 assessment will be in the notes. I heartily recommend that you read them. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. James. After years of poor results, is the market at the moment just simply willing itself back towards a profitable position instead of actually being forced to do so by capital constraints? I think an interestingly nuanced question, because the capital situation, if we look at the end of March to what we're looking at, we estimate at the end of June is quite different. At the end of March, we estimated that the global reinsurance capital was down probably 30% on what was available at the end of December 2019. But the Q2 has seen a remarkable recovery, both in investment markets and also some new capital coming into the industry. So the capital is, we estimate, perhaps only 5% down on what it was at the year end. So in a sense, concerns in sort of March, April about capital constraint have to some extent been mitigated in the short term. So in reality, I think the market is willing itself back to profitability. I think that a lot of the carriers are looking at the investment returns they will be able to get on the new premium that comes in, which is meager on a good day. The twin problems of loss creep on back years and under-reserving are still there. They haven't gone away. And so there is a renewed emphasis on underwriting profitability. 
Yes, capital has a degree, plays a role within it, but I think it's much more that the market is pushing itself back to profitability. And it's what we've seen recently at the 1st of July and the 1st of June renewals, that there is some differentiation in reinsurer's approach. And the differentiation is largely driven by the performance of individual lines of business in individual territories, rather than a generic capital constraint. You mentioned about that bounce back at the lowest point of the the financial reaction to COVID-19. You said we were probably about 30% off on industry capital, and now we're probably about minus 5%. How much do you think of that is due to the new capital being raised, partly by the class of 2020 and incumbents reloading capital? And how much of it is due to that bounce back we've had in the financial market since mid-March? The majority, I think, is due to bounce back. We've tracked about 16 billion of capital raises coming through so far, which is, you know, a significant amount of money. But put against the totality of the capital base of the global reinsurance industry, it's still not that. It is really the recovery in the investment markets that has produced the lion's share of those gains. James, we're talking about a reinsurance market that was not capital constrained during the mid-year renewals. So in the light of that, Do you think this nascent class of 2020, what sort of chances do you think that gives it of succeeding if there's no real capital shortfall? I think it depends very much which areas of business they're going to write, because there's definitely more pressures in some lines of business in some territories than in others. I think the days of, let's say, you look at 2001 and 2005, where it was a general hardening in the market and that lifted all boats, not equally, but everybody all went up together. I don't think we're in that type of market. So some of the new capital and new startups that are coming in, it's interesting, they are quite focused, some of them in certain areas where they see both rate increases and a persistency of rate increase coming through. So I think that there's a reasonable chance that those who have a focused strategy of what they want to do and the lines they want to enter, they could probably do reasonably well. But a more generic approach, I think, may be more difficult. So is it right to summarize that to say that the class of 2020s can be more like a more of a perhaps a specialty insurance class of carriers rather than a new class of reinsurers per se. I think that may be right. I think that general point, obviously in the last year or two, we have seen some convex as a good example as a general reinsurer. But if I look at most of the new ones that are being discussed at the moment, the ones that have actually come through to fruition, it's either specialty existing companies raising capital because they see in the areas they operate clear opportunity. And then one or two ones like the Starstone US one, which I think is fairly straightforward in what they're trying to do. And you know that is not a reinsurance play. That's a US specialty ENS play. We've had capital recovering in this half of the year now. Well, obviously it went down and then went back up again. If it continues at the same rate it has been recovering, what do you think is the likely capital position at 1121? Do you think we'll actually have relatively year-on-year increased total capital available to us by then? That I'm not sure. It's difficult to know how the capital investment markets are going to perform. Interest rates are incredibly low. And you look at the most reinsurers have large bond portfolios. You look at those and you think, well, really, how much more can they gain on those? The volatility around alternative investments and equities, you know, the capital charges that sit around those make it difficult. But the elephant in the room really is what are people going to do about their reserving for 
COVID claims when they get towards the end of the year. So we'll wait and see how much new capital actually comes in. But as I said earlier, the key is really what happens in the investment markets. It would be surprising if the total amount of available capital was larger for the 1121 renewals. I suspect that any increases will be eaten up by reserving increases, be they COVID or maybe the other lines coming in, and maybe further instability in the capital markets. So you've been talking about the accumulated casualty reserving shortfall of those soft market years that we've just been through. What's your gut feeling in terms of whether the liability losses or the losses coming from COVID-19 are going to be larger than the losses than that accumulated (laughs) casualty reserving shortfall from the soft market years? That is very difficult. There's two difficult questions. How big is is the reserving deficit and what do we think COVID is going to finally be? The challenge we've got at the moment is, I think, so far declared losses from COVID are only about 7 billion. And the market, there's a huge range in estimates for what COVID might cost. But let's put it in the range of 30 to 60 billion against seven that people have announced to date. There's obviously a lot further to go in COVID losses developing. Now, if it came out at 50 or 60 billion in a couple of years' time, is that bigger or smaller than the current under-reserving? Difficult to know, very difficult to know. What is clear, though, is that there's a lot of activity, particularly in the London market around Lloyd's, but also in some specialty companies to free up capital by essentially passing off their back years to specialist runoff companies. That has become a very, very active area. And again, you know, how does that going to play through into the market? We'll have to wait and see. And to be fair, those runoff companies, that is one area where new capital has been coming into the market. So do you think that's going to remove uncertainty, isn't it? And perhaps do you think it was what's really driving everything is is material uncertainty on both the under-reserving and COVID? And if you remove uncertainty, is that likely to affect pricing and make people a little bit bolder on the pricing? I think it will, COVID it's too early, I think, to tell what's going to happen on some of those, on that development. But certainly removing some of the uncertainty on the under-reserving on back years will be helpful. But on the other hand, those incumbents that do those sort of deals and free up capital, they're going to be quite cautious in their underwriting going forward because they will have given away or seeded away substantial reserves and substantial investment float. So I'm not sure that they will be as aggressive as they might have otherwise been. They will be cautious about making sure the business they put on the books has a reasonable chance of profitability. Okay, we'll put all of what we've just been discussing together and ask the big question, then looking ahead to the big renewals of 1-1-2021, do you think this increased rating momentum is going to continue? I think at the moment, if we take the trend that we saw at the 1st of January, then the 1st of April, now the 1st of June and 1st of July, the trend is relatively clear that there has been a consistent hardening in the market. And it's really driven by stricter underwriting. And I think until such time as the true underlying profitability of the business becomes clear, it's difficult to see that trend abating at the moment. It varies by territory, and I said by line of business, but reinsurers have not made much money in the last couple of years, and they need to have a decent underwriting year's profit. And it's going to have to be underwriting profit because there won't be much coming out of the investment side. So in the short term, it's not easy to see that this trend is going to rapidly change. The report mentions about 
investor differentiation, particularly in the ILS market, which of course has had a very difficult last two or three years. Is that really a sign of that market maturing and coming of age? I think that probably sums it up quite well. I think that the difference in performance by different uh, funds and also reinsurers managing ILS funds is quite clear. I don't think that there's an unabated interest in ILS as as investment class for capital markets investors, but I think they are now much better informed and they're much more careful about who they are prepared to back and what types of investment strategy they're prepared to back. So traditionists rubbing their hands thinking this might be the demise of ILS are probably wrong is what you'd say. Um, It's just it's now becoming a much more discerning market and much more mature in that sense. I mean, I think you look at it, you look at some of the traditional cat bond 144A structured plain vanilla cap bonds that are tradable. There are a number of those have been placed and, you know, the investor demand for well-structured, transparent bonds is there. It's perhaps the areas that are pushed a bit harder in the collateralized and some of the sidecars, the less opaque structures, the more private deals, the, the deals that can't be traded easily. That's perhaps where life is a lot more difficult. But see, ILS played a lot in the retro markets, particularly mm. the collateralized retro, and that seems to be the hardest area of the reinsurance world at the moment. So is that the best opportunity for sellers of reinsurance at the moment? Or is it that buyers are very sophisticated and they're opportunistic and do they just not buy if the retro price is too high? Yeah, I think that's a, an astute observation. They are very sophisticated, the big buyers of retro. And of course, they have other means of managing their exposures, either raising more capital, adjusting their front-end underwriting. And they are looking, I think, very, very acutely at the cost of retro and looking at that in terms of what about the cost of other forms of capital that I can use to support my writings and where is that trade-off? So yes, there has been a, a considerable contraction in capacity in the retro market, as you said, it's heavily ILS exposed, but there's also signs that a number of buyers are not going back into the market. Some of them have bought ILWs, some of them have done cap bonds, some of them have raised a little bit more capital. They've done a variety of strategies and retro is just one of the levers they have to pull. So piling into the retro market, hoping that everybody is going to pay substantially inflated prices, that may not be a particularly sound long-term strategy. I think there has to be a link between the value of retro in terms of capital and performance management back to the buyer to see if they actually still want to continue to buy or buy in a different way. Yes, you mentioned about all the different capital levers and retro perhaps being just one of those. What's your feeling about the incumbent capital raising that we've seen? Do you think some of that has been actually to replace retro? You you sort of half aren't in your previous answer. I think that some of the um, incumbent capital raise, yes, it's a combination of reasons. I think people see a hardening market, so they see an opportunity. They see an opportunity that they can service that capital, which probably means that they say, well, all right, I'll take more risk onto my books, i.e. buy less retro. So I think it's a combination of things. I don't think anybody is going out there saying, right, I'm not going to buy any more retro. I'm just going to go and raise more capital. I think it's a more nuanced decision that many people take, but certainly increases in incumbents capital, they are taking into account what their retro requirements will be. And I think in a lot of cases, they will be dialing it down a bit. Okay, what about overall um, prospects for the marketplace? I'm sure you've got to do your budgets like anybody else. We're going into almost certainly a global recession in 2020. 
Do you think the, the reduction in the exposures, the unit exposure of insurance and reinsurance as a corollary of that, do you think that's going to wipe out the GWP gains that we're getting from harder reinsurance and insurance pricing? Do you think we're in for a bonanza or, or is it going to be more like a sort of score draw between the two? I think that it's difficult, that one, to judge because how the recessionary nature of the next year or so affects gross written premiums will vary very much by line of business and by country and territory. And some of the lines of business which may be most affected maybe traditionally don't buy much reinsurance i'm talking about things like motor business this type of thing but then other lines of business like homeowners insurance property business where mortgages and banks are involved people have to buy insurance i don't see that that will be affected particularly greatly so and against that i think from a pure reinsurance point of view What we are seeing in these sort of slightly difficult and volatile times is there is people are buying more reinsurance. Primary companies are ensuring net underwriting profitability is becoming more and more important for them because the investment side will not bail out. And whilst changes in terms and conditions and hardening and original pricing is taking place, the requirement to produce a reasonable net profit is growing. So we are actually seeing an increased demand for reinsurance. So paradoxically, the primary markets may flatline overall or may show a little bit of growth on the back of rate increases. But we see this increased demand for reinsurance really driven around volatility management and in some areas, and there's a runoff field on capital management. Talking about terms and conditions, obviously the most important term and condition in anyone's reinsurance contract is going to be how that treaty will be responding to communicable diseases and future pandemics and, of course, the current pandemic. Just to to look at COVID-19 itself, the current pandemic, obviously your report mentions about obviously a huge amount of discussion around exclusionary language Mm. uh, at renewals. How much have the exclusions of COVID-19 limited reinsurers' exposure to perhaps an extended second wave of COVID-19 losses going forward now post-renewal, the ones that have renewed since the pandemic was discovered? I think reinsurers have tried to insulate themselves from that going forward. The question is, what's the nature of the contract? Is it a loss occurring or risk attaching? Reinsurers certainly exposed to the runoff of policies written prior to any original COVID exclusions being attached. But I think by and large, as you can see, COVID exclusions were pretty much required at 1.6 and 1.7 over most lines of business. So... Yes, there's runoff exposure there, and there are the idiosyncrasies of how the, uh, how the current losses that are coming through may be dealt with. But on the whole, I think reinsurers have tried to insulate themselves from further claims going forward. And in terms of how well protected are they now from any future pandemics, I mean, are they getting blanket communicable disease exclusions, i.e. would they be excluding a COVID-20 or 21 at this stage? <laughs> Oh, I think we've got a library of about 180 different COVID clauses. <laughs> it's very difficult to, to, to make a blanket comment because it does vary very much by contract and by territory and by line of business. You know, in some cases on pro rata treaties where seeding companies have been able to explain their underwriting strategy and share their exclusionary language, reinsurers have been happy to continue without any exclusions at all and just rely on the exclusions in the original policy. In other cases, there have been exclusions put into the treaties and there are significant differences in the wordings that those are put through. 
and all sorts of different nuances. As a very, very broad brush comment, I think you can probably say that reinsurers have done a reasonable job at insulating themselves from further pandemics going forward. But on a case-by-case basis in individual territories, that may not be quite so true. So in general, we'd say that reinsurers are protecting themselves against current pandemic and future pandemic. Do you think that's actually the right thing for them to do as long-term partners? No, I think that the best way, the the ones who are handling this best, the ones who are actually working with their seeding companies to understand what they're doing. Because this isn't just a problem for the reinsurers, it's also a problem for the primary companies. And some of the primary companies have either they genuinely don't give any cover and they've been able to uh, demonstrate to the reinsurers their original policy language doesn't cover it, therefore it's a non-subject as far as they're concerned. And others have been sharing their changing underwriting strategy and what they're doing and you know how they expect to, well not expect, how they are going to manage this issue going forward. The ones who perhaps have more of an issue, and they're not many of those, are those who are not able to provide a clear message or explanation to reinsurers of what they're up to and what they're planning to do. But to be fair, they're not many of them. So do you think this is the watershed moment, a bit like we had in, in the 90s and after 9-11, particularly with terrorism globally? Do you think this is the moment at which the pandemic is beginning to be almost completely excluded and will have to be a standalone either class of business or uh, on something that is probably backed up by state-backed schemes and public-private initiatives? Is it going to hasten that development? I think so. I think so. I think that there's intensive discussion in a number of countries now about some form of public-private schemes to manage a pandemic. I mean, exactly how they work, what shape they take. We'll have to wait to see how they develop. But in a lot of the European countries and, of course, in the US, there is quite a lot of debate around that. And various different models and ideas are being discussed. But I think there is a general recognition that trying to manage everything within the private sector is going to be very challenging. Do you think that's that's because of the systemic nature of the risk? I think so. I think so. I mean, exactly how things will work out and how the various schemes will be put together, we'll have to wait and see. But it's the systemic nature and also the fact that what has rattled everybody is that the pandemic is one of those few risks that impacts both sides of the balance sheet both the investment side and the underwriting side. Whereas most of the other, well, in fact, virtually all the other risks insurance companies take are relatively isolated from the investment side. James, I've come to the end of my allotted questions. And I just want to ask you if there's anything we haven't discussed that perhaps we should have discussed. Well, I think the only thing that I would say is that if we look at how what we were thinking about in early April, as I said, with the capital base of the insurance industry severely depleted, there was quite a lot of nervousness about what the 1st of June and the 1st of July would hold. But the reality is that the reinsurance market has yet again performed. It's supported its primary clients. It's done so in a logical way. Quality clients who've got good relationships, who demonstrate sound underwriting and good business practices have been well supported. Others that are a bit more distressed have been differentiated and had a slightly more difficult time. But nobody is sitting here without cover. Everybody has got home one way or another. And the test really over the next six months is, you know, what happens in the North Atlantic hurricane season and how exactly are these COVID claims going to develop along with 
can the capital investment markets continue to defy gravity as they've done in the second quarter? So we've all done well, and we should probably thank all of our central bankers, is what you're saying, that they're the chief underwriting officers of, of the world. I think that is probably correct. <laughs> but the problem with the central bankers is the ultra-low interest rate environment. For insurance companies who primarily invest in bonds, that's becoming an issue. And whether they, and some of them are diversifying away into more corporate bonds, slightly more risky bonds, how that all works, we'll have to wait and see. Because if some of those corporate bonds begin to be downgraded, you get a double hit. One, you have a downgrade and you maybe you lose some investment income on them. But crucially, you get an increased capital load. So that will eat capital on the investment side. So that is a concern how that will play out. James, thank you so much for your time. Once again, you must be incredibly busy with all that's going on and the amount of communication one presumes you have to do with reinsurers and clients at the moment. So thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And please make sure you come back when it's your next first view report is out, which I'm sure is going to be 1-1-2021. I'll, one, one, I'll be delighted to. Great. Thank you so much, James. Okay, thank, thanks very much, Mark. Thanks. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.